My name is Bianca Klein. My name is Eric Adkins. And you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Ben. Welcome back. Hello. Aloha. How are you doing? Aloha. I will say that in the howliest way that I can. Aloha. <laughs> I noticed in, in Hawaii they would say aloha, like that was where the, the emphasis went. I, I Anyway. It, it's, it's pretty funny. There's a town in Oregon spelled the same as aloha, but everyone here calls it aloha. I love it when, when people do that. Like uh, there's a town in California called Paso Robles, but the people there call it Paso Robles. Yeah, Paso Robles. Oh, well, we have San Pedro. In yeah, Southern California, and, I get uh, I, I get people look askance at me when I talk about Los Feliz. Yeah, which, Los Feliz, which is which. Yeah, Los Angelinos call it Los Feliz, and I'm like, that's not how you say those words at all. Exactly, uh, it's, it's Feliz Navidad. <laughs> yeah. So Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, we have a powerhouse duo from the hit new movie uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. We have uh, Bianca Klein and Eric Atkins. I still have not seen that movie. I'm dying to see it. And I have to say, once again, as far as I can tell, A24, just killing it. Uh, just uh, amazed at some of the output of what they've been doing. Uh, they're sort of all the independent studios all at once right now, aren't they? Yeah, really amazing stuff coming out of A24. So, Ben, unlike the last couple of weeks, there's all kinds of things to talk about uh, going on now. Uh, oh, my God, yes. But I think we've got something for Close Focus that is not exactly on everybody's radar, but there was a, an article in Rolling Stone, which we will have a link to in the show notes at Cam Noir. It came out back on July 18th. The headline is, Fake Accounts Fueled the Snyder Cut Online Army. And essentially, if you read this article and go through it, it breaks down in a very detailed manner and they have uh several experts that they talk to in this that bots and fake accounts essentially manipulated public opinion or contributed to manipulating public opinion and internal politics at warner brothers to essentially get a whole bunch of good stuff happening for Zack snyder including uh, another cut of his movie well, it's not just another cut. They spent like, wasn't it $60 million to finish the, the Snyder cut of Justice League? Yes, there was a lot of money that was spent all in all in this. And yeah, they, they talk about in the article essentially how fake Twitter accounts and other social media accounts kept goosing particular pro-Snyder propaganda, for lack of a better term. Mm. And they break down in sort of really interesting ways all the manipulation that appears to now have been discovered. And how also there was a bunch of like uh, shade, as they say, a lot of hate going towards executives at Warner Brothers who were supposedly standing in the way of the Snyder Cut coming out. And so they weird. say that there is like, you know, of course, a huge Zack Snyder fan base, but that there are some accounts in particular that seem to be almost like leadership accounts, which guide and manipulate the masses to do the dirty work that fueled a whole lot of manufactured talking points, which feels so much like politics. But this isn't For politics. Real. This is, you know, this is a private enterprise. This is commercialism and entertainment. I mean, it's it's to, better than to, politics. It's movies. I'm, I'm much more interested in movies. So, yeah. 
The campaign didn't end with the release of the Snyder Cut, and it looks like bots have factored into Snyder possibly winning two fan-favorite awards at the, the Oscars this year. What? And yeah, it's definitely worth taking a look at it, and they talk about the barrage that basically has happened on, on Twitter, and Warner Brothers has made it abundantly clear that they are never going to be manipulated in any way uh, like this again, and uh, there's been quite a bit of fallout. So uh, so anyway, it's definitely worth reading this Relating Stone article. It's fascinating, and I feel like I have only scratched the surface in our conversation right now, and I think that's probably the best thing to do, but if you are interested in the idea of bots manipulating the entertainment industry you need look no further than this article in rolling stone it's interesting like uh when i saw army of the dead which Zack snyder directed and dp'd i posted something positive about it i was like oh wow who knew what a great dp Zack snyder was or something something you know uh, inconsequential yeah just a tweet just a me being an asshole doing a, a tweet who gives a shit and and it was like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of sudden likes and I was like, oh, I think I just touched the toxic fan base here. Like, I think I just reached into the abyss. I just looked right into the abyss and it looked right back at me. And, you uh. know, the, the thing is, this, this has nothing substantially to do with Zack Snyder's movies at all. He's a filmmaker. He does some good. He does some bad. Whatever. Like anyone else. Uh, I, I like some of his movies. I don't like some of his movies. You know, whatever. As it turns out, I prefer the Snyder cut of Justice League to the theatrical cut. I don't think that's even a slightly controversial thing to say. But how weird is this? How weird is it that somebody and, you know, the article goes into some detail of speculating who that might be. But like, who would do this? Why would anyone manipulate this? And also, you know, since Warner Brothers is like, you know, uh, they're not going to fall for another banana in the tailpipe. Uh, Gen X joke. <laughs> I feel like there goes any chance of the David Ayer cut of uh, of Suicide Squad. Well, anyway, I think I think it's very interesting that the world that we're in right now still sort of has this duality of people who are savvy to the manipulation that might be happening online and sort of an old guard that is not yet savvy. And I think that everyone, though, is going to learn these lessons really, really quick because the same sort of things that happened with the 2016 election and evidence in the 2020 election, that same sort of like manipulation and fake accounts and bots. And boy, if you haven't seen some of the movies that we talked about in uh, on the show, too, like um, The Dissident, where they, they talk about all of the Saudi Arabia's bot accounts and Russian hackers and things like that. If yeah. you're not if you're under that rock and don't understand it, then you you really should be suspect of a lot of things that are said online. I, I have to say that I was looking at a uh, this is this is going back a little ways, but I was looking at solar panels once upon a time, and I remember clicking on this link about like, oh yeah, we want to get some solar panels on your house. Well, uh, it says look at all our five star reviews, and all I had to do <laughs> was spend about uh, thirty seconds browsing, and all of those five star reviews completely seemed like absolutely fake accounts that you would not trust at all. And if you looked yeah, at yeah. all of their reviews, it was suddenly found out that. All, there's an awful lot of people with a lot of time on their hands doing a lot of reviews for exactly the same like four companies. So it was like, oh, okay, this is completely a bot farm. This is completely a thing. And it's out there everywhere. And we all should be somewhat aware of, of what's going on. Well, it's like simultaneously surprising and unsurprising because Twitter's been around for a long time now that the studio would fall for it. But also unsurprising to me that Studio Brass 
wouldn't be kind of a bunch of Luddites and wouldn't realize how technology was being used until 2010-ish or so. The internet was just kind of viewed as the enemy. Like when I would deal with studios, they didn't really understand what the internet was. And they're like, that's the place where all those assholes are who just want to pirate our movies. Like, no, the internet is everybody, you know, it's everybody. And the fact that bot farms, it actually kind of touches on the whole Elon Musk situation with him trying to buy Twitter and then basically saying Twitter had underestimated what percentage of the accounts were fake. And that's like, I have a goofy novelty account that I have on, on Twitter where I write goofy shit, but that's not a fake account. Like if someone emailed that account, I would respond. But a bot is basically just, there's no there there. There's no person there. There's like one person using a piece of software to drive tens of thousands of artificial people. Sometimes um, even just a couple hundred. I mean, but it's amazing what, what impact even that few can have. So yeah, it's, it, it's crazy because I really, I remember when like the whole Snyder army thing was happening and the release, the Snyder cut was trending all the time. And I was like, really? Are people that excited about seeing the Zack Snyder cut of justice league? And it, it, I mean, you know, I, sometimes I'm just like, not, I don't have my finger on the pulse, so I don't, I don't know what people want. And I was like, I guess a lot of people really care about this. I, you know, I'm happy I saw it. It's cool. But if it never came out, I, I would be uh, the same person that I am right now. It wasn't a transformative experience. So anyway, it's unsurprising to me that somebody was weaponizing that. I, I would like to think it wasn't Zack Snyder himself or any, you know, any of his immediate associates who, who were doing it. But whoever was doing it, uh, super weird. <laughs> Definitely. Well, on the other end of the spectrum is Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And I'm very, very pleased now to get into the interview with Bianca Klein and Eric Atkins. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Bianca Klein, Eric Atkins, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. It's great to be here. Nothing better than talking about cinematography. You guys are here because you have a hit movie out in the theaters right now called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. You. So I understand this was a really quick shoot, like a week or something. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Of course, this is <laughs> this was a famously long shoot. Would you like to uh, to tell the, the story of how this kind of came to be? These were some short films that were put online almost accidentally. The director and the actress, they wrote it together, Jenny and Dean, and they made this like two minute short film for a stand up show. Somebody in the audience was like, will you please post it online so I can show my grandma? And then it like snowballed and became this, you know, 20 million views or something short film. And then they made a couple other ones. And then it was like a seven year process of trying to, you know, figure out what the film was going to be and then writing another one as a, you know, a feature length and then, you know, trying to get it made, of course, you know, takes a while. So then in, in summer of 2019, we started production on the film and we filmed for 23 days, 24 days filming in a house in, in Hollywood near the Paramount Studios. And, um, and then COVID came. Um, and put a damper on the post-production side of, of the film. I'll take it away from that. Uh, I was also involved with the, in the live action uh, in a kind of an animation supervisor of sort with my tape measure and iPad and all these various tools of making notes and 
just documenting Bianca's beautiful work. And it's just really nice to be on a fly on the wall and also be able to interject cautions and ideas and people be receptive. And it's just a really positive crew vibe. And it was just really nice to be there on the live action. So then when the they had to edit everything from the live action and, and select plates in a finished cut because what they have is an animatic that they replace uh, all these beautiful shots with. And then I had to look at all those and then start analyzing the actual physical select takes to figure out, okay, what's the shooting order? How are we going to do this? But basically, we started pre-production uh, about three, four months after live action ended and then we got two weeks into production and actually shooting and then COVID pulled the, the plug temporarily for about three and a half months and then after that we went on uh, for another 10 more weeks and we were then finished with that and then the true post-production comes around and, and the composite layers uh, come in. It was, it was quite a fun ordeal. Nobody got sick and uh, during COVID. And, and, and it's such a great project that feels good about life and the aftermath of things. So. It is a, you know, it's a gorgeous movie. And there's so many different elements that are all kind of playing together through the whole thing. Uh, you have the, the live action, you have the stop frame animation, you have a little bit of visual effects going on, and there's all these worlds that are both inside and outside. And I have to imagine that you guys had to come up with a collaboration and a way to work together for all the details because so much of this movie seems to happen in the macro. And I don't mean in the, the macro sense and sort of like the big picture, but in the macro is in the macro lenses. You seem to be, you must be, you've got stuff happening very much in the foreground and stuff happening in the background. You know, maybe Bianca, maybe you could take this. Can you talk about the collaboration of like where your plates end and the animation begins and that sort of thing? Um, do you know, I think that I tried to approach the film as if there was no posts. Like, okay, well, how would we film this first? Like if Marcel were a real living character and try to create a visual language that worked for him and for the story. And then we started devising images that we wanted I should tell you too, it's kind of a, it was kind of unusual thing. Like when I came to the project, there was no script. Like they had written like a, a rough form script. Like from what I understand, it was kind of a treatment. Like this is where the story is kind of going. And then they recorded the voices for a while, you know, kind of working on it and improv and figuring out where it could go and kind of really refining it. Not like refining it in script form, but refining it in, let's just do the takes. And they were, you know, recording all because most of the characters are either animated or are off screen. So when I got the project, nobody sent me a script. They sent me a, a locked audio, like they had done music, sound effects, dialogue. It was all there. And then there were storyboards to go with it. And so I just watched the storyboards and listened to the finished audio, which was really unique to be able to like listen to the actual performances. It's not just dialogue on a page. It's like, okay, this is how, this is the finished performance. And then we're adding the visuals to go with it. So what we would did then during pre-production, because we were filming mostly in one house, like our pre-pro was all in that house. And we would just go there every day and, you know, have our meetings and talk about things. And it afforded us the ability to every day kind of do location scouts. And we'd wander around the house and we're like, okay, so 
this scene would maybe play well in this area or we just find the really great places. You know, it's like, oh, the lighting looks really great on this window in the morning or, you know, this closet's great, this, you know, everywhere. And then we created photo boards and we would and we kind of replaced all the storyboards that we could with photo boards. So that by the time production started, like everybody, you could watch the movie kind of finished with photo boards. And then throughout the production, we would record those as, you know, as real images and then replace them. So like by the last day of production, we had a pretty good rough cut. It was like, oh, you kind of, we knew what scenes we had covered and had done and you could kind of see how everything was working. So as far as what we could do, it was like, well, this is what we want to do. This is what we would ideally do. And then we would find trouble, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's not going to be replicatable or it's going to be difficult for a stop motion replication. We always had our VFX supervisor and our animation director there. And like kind of between the four of us, we would really brainstorm and be like, okay, well, what if we did this? And also Liz Tunkel, our production designer, you know, it's like between the five of us really, it's like, okay, how can, can we build this? Can we take that to stop motion? Can we, will this, will this work? You know, different camera movements, different lightings, is this going to work? How are we going to do this? We also filmed on several different cameras, depending on, you know, what was happening in the film. So yeah, it was kind of just a very joint effort about like what, this is what we want to do. Let's make it shape, you know, how can we do it to make it work, to be replicatable on, on stage. Were you doing match moves or any motion control for any of the stuff to try to make that easier? Um, well, absolutely. Um, and part of that was in our dialogue between myself and, and Bianca and, and figuring out how complex of a move is this going to be? Um, oh, because it's documentary style, we pan away. And said, so, oh, when you pan back, can you come around and already be in a position so we don't actually have to do a dynamic 3D move that you just spin around and you're back to a new frame up. And so there were constantly thinking of things where we could minimize the difficulty, knowing that we'll go through all those difficulties, but part of life and, and filmmaking is to minimize your compromises throughout the shoot. So it's like, give yourself bookends and then work within them. If you have to push the bookend to the side, well, then you have to do that. But if you can, you know, truly minimize your complications, you know, Bianca was really great at memorizing the timing because she studied the radio play so much that she knows the speaking part and she knows, you know, when to drift off and focus or, or whatever, but at least get, know where the character's supposed to be because we actually shot references and then you pull the reference out and then, okay, here's the hero plate. At its heart, Marcel is, well, it's actually, it's, it's hard to describe. It's a documentary. But it's not a documentary, it's a narrative. So that means it's sort of in that faux documentary style, but it's documentary with magical realism. And it's, you know, you've got this very cute character that, that's improvised and really very funny and very engaging to, I, I would say, really wide audiences. I know kids really respond to this. I know adults really respond to this. I've never seen a movie exactly like this, but I would definitely feel like there's a rich history of, you know, the faux documentary style brought into an, an improvised format, something like, you know, a, a waiting for Guffman. But I've never seen it done with stop motion, which to me just seems to add like this extra layer on the whole thing for, for complexity. It, I mean, by the time Post gets involved, the whole movie is shot. It's in the can. But I have a feeling that there's quite a bit of the face 
animation of Marcel and all the rest of the shells having to be altered, possibly, depending on then how the, the dialogue goes. Can you talk at all about maybe sort of the complexity of adding the stop motion aspect to what otherwise would be a very straightforward genre like, you know, the, the, the mockumentary? I think that our goal was to make it feel very um, like it was very easy. You know, like we just showed up with a camera. Mission accomplished. You succeeded. Thank you. Absolutely, you. you absolutely get that feeling. But I have to say that the complexity of getting to there was, was non-trivial. That was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big feat because it was like the normal things that you would do in a documentary of like, well, relying on natural sunlight or, you know, all these things you normally do in, in, uh, to make a documentary don't last for very long. So it was like we had to have a lot of control over what we were doing. We also needed a lot more light than you would normally need, like filming a human, because when you get down into that macro world where like a wide shot of Marcel is like, he's like 12 inches from the lens. So uh, it's like at that distance you have, like even, even when we were filming at like an eight or an 11, you would still have two inches of depth of field. So it's like we were constantly trying to get enough stop to be able to get some sort of semblance of depth of field. Otherwise, everything would be super soft. And we didn't really want it to feel that way. You know, I wanted it to feel like you to be in his world. But we also didn't want to use some of the typical things people use for macro, like InnoVision lenses or T-Rex, you know, the Fraser lens, where it's like kind of makes you feel like he's giant. It's like we wanted you to feel he's very small. It's a really important part of the story that he's overwhelmed by the world. You know, the world is just too big for him and too much, but he's still resilient and happy and positive and loves himself, even though that's the case. So we kind of, we wanted that to always be present and we would stage him in places that you could tell how small he was, you know, putting him next to things that give you reference. You know, he's standing on the edge of a couch and you could tell how small he is or, you know, just when he was trying to do certain things, you know, light a match or something. It's like, oh, that that match is three times taller than him. You know, it's just all these little things that are much more difficult for him. So anyway, we wanted it to feel more like a person with just a regular size camera trying to get in close. And it also, you know, we realized, too, it's not that easy. Like if you were actually doing this documentary, it would be really, really difficult. So we had to go through a lot of effort, but we wanted it to feel that way, feel that it was just super easy and just, you know, just interviewing my friend Marcel that lives there. So it was just that, yeah, it was a whole lot of paddling to hopefully look graceful and smooth. I, I think you totally pulled it off. Um, on the complexity scale, how complex was it to make it look this effortless? Very. <laughs> um, I, the thing that we found the most difficult was that nobody's really done a movie this way before. So we were, we had no reference to build upon, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so did this or on my last part, you know, it's like we, we took all the bits and pieces of things that we've done on other projects, you know, other visual effects, other stop motion things. And it's like, but how do you combine all those into a movie in this way that's supposed to feel not only more of in the real world, but also in a documentary kind of off the cuff way, you know, it's like, okay, we want this to feel very spontaneous, but also that's not exactly the way that the stop motion world works. You know, everything takes forever to, to, you know, to just complete a small sequence. So it's like, okay, we want that to feel like we just caught this at, at a certain moment, but then replicating it is a hundred times harder than that. 
I, I, there's an interesting thing about when you say complications and uh, of the production, and and to me, complications and problems only inspire you more to pull out of the hat things that if you trust your intuition and your experience and and be open to different outcomes that you can really tackle a lot it's a large percentage of the fun of it i think that some of the most fun for me is seeing the documentary portions that take place outside in the yard of the house and then Essentially, we're in close on what's happening outside in the yard. And then in the back of my brain, I know that this was not all happening outside in a yard. This then got recreated somewhere on a stage so they could spend, you know, probably weeks to make this scene happen. Can you talk a little bit about taking particularly the outdoor elements and then bringing them indoors for the animation portion? You tell them, Eric. I mean, my my and I was I was fortunate to have these guys who were just kind of let me do whatever. Like I thought, I thought dappled lighting that was moving through trees and such would be a really big problem. And they were like, no, we can, we can work on that. We can, we can make it happen. Well, uh, to me, that is interactivity and finding the things that connect the composite not only helps with the live action plates, but it helps with the composite uh, in the post. And yes, we're able to frame by frame map out the select take. As long as there's a select take, right, you can actually see it and analyze it and see when that shadow is crossing Marcel. Or, you know, you're in the car and you turn the corner and it shifts from direct sunlight to complete shade. And then there's a color change. And then there's, you know, all these really fun things that are based out of real life and, and a lot of fudging around to make it work. I really wanted the lighting to feel chaotic, like in the way I try to bring that to a lot of my narrative work so that it feels a bit more real, like things light bouncing off of grass, you know, giving you a green reflection or some sort of green undertone. Or, you know, I I think that mixing color temperatures a lot, having light that doesn't really sit still and is not very constant makes it feel more like it's in the real world. And it's something that definitely makes that motion more challenging, but that was really great for us because we wanted the Marcel to not feel like a cartoon. I guess I would just want him to feel like a any person you would film a, a documentary about. Okay, I gotta ask. Marcel the Shell with shoes on, part two. Are you already having conversations about this? Would you approach it the same way if they if they said, hey, you know what, we want to do this again? This, you know, a lot of people are loving this. Uh, and what would you do differently if you if you had to do something different to go back and do it all again? You'd be part five. <laughs> <laughs> or part five for that matter. That's true. If you're, if you're counting all the, the, the you know, the the uh well, I was thinking of like the feature length project rather than the uh the the YouTube. So what would we do differently? I don't know. I mean, I guess we just we learned so much because every day was like this learning experience of like you know, I mean, anytime you're filming a movie, you kind of learn little tricks to rely on. You're like, oh, this worked really well. You know, longer lens with this f-stop, this filtrate, you know, you're like, oh, I really liked that. So then you can, for the rest of your life, you have that in your back pocket. And it's like, oh, I could do that. And, you know, trying to solve problems with dollies or flags or reflective flares. It's like, okay, we, we were learning all these things new on set. I was going to say this earlier about like the very first scene that we filmed was the scene where Marcel is making popcorn with a magnifying glass and it starts popping. And so um, we wanted them to like run across the countertop, like running away from the popcorn. 
And so we were like, well, that's going to be like a parallax shift, right? It's going to be changing angle on them in a way that's difficult. So we just had a thing where we're like, oh, well, the documentary filmmakers caught off guard too. And so the camera, like when the popcorn starts popping, the camera kind of drops down below the surface of the countertop just for a second. And then when we pop back up, then the Marcel and his, and his grandmother are in the new position. So it's like, it's very imperceptible. You know, you see, you, you feel that they're running across the countertop, but you really don't see it. You miss that part where we're changing angle a little bit. And it was like that kind of thing all the way throughout the production. It was like, oh, I think this works a little bit better as we kind of learn and learn. And so now by the end of it, it's like, oh, we have all these new skills of how to do a movie like this. So yeah, I mean, it would definitely be a lot easier to do, or it would just, you'd come into it with a whole new, you know, a, a skill set that we didn't have at the beginning of the production. And I'd like to think that we could forget some of what we did and, you know, and have something new happen because the spontaneity is really fun and inspirational, but spontaneity with plenty of pre-planning <laughs> is the key thing. And they could have, after we went into COVID, they could have gone, oh, well, let's just do everything CG. People work out of their, you know, their, their apartments and, and we could get this film out. But no, they were so in love with what was happening, what the true inspiration was, that, that it was working. And, and so we just waited COVID lockdown off and then we got back to it. It, it seems to me like you must have had that house for quite a while. I actually think I know exactly where that house is. I think it's actually in my former neighborhood and I used to walk around it all the time, especially during the pandemic. And I remember thinking to myself, cause it's a really, it's a really cool house, but the yard had kind of like fallen into disrepair. And I thought that, uh, <laughs> someone had like abandoned this house cause there was like newspaper on the windows as well. And I, I could be completely wrong here and this might not be the same place, but when I saw the movie, I was like, Oh my God, I know exactly where that house is. That's, well, it's that's... actually two houses. The exterior is a different house than the, all the interiors. And I'm just talking about the exterior, though, because I think that's in Studio City right near CBS yeah. Radford. Yeah, yeah. But, so we weren't there for very long. We were only there for a few days. But the majority, we were like 19 days or something at the other house where we did all the interiors in the backyard, that kind of thing. When I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, that's my neighborhood. I know where that house is. And then I, of course, wondered, like, was all the stuff on the inside I was seeing really that same place? And, of course, now you've you've ruined the illusion that it, I'm sorry. it's actually... It's, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's still magic. <laughs> no, you know what, though? That's the magic. That's the magic of cinema. And, you know, that's also part of the magic of like being in L.A. because it's like, oh, I know where that is. Oh, I know where that is. I've seen that. That was in that movie. So, yeah. And it just so happens my neighborhood uh, happened to be where the exterior of that house was for Marcel the Shell. So, so shifting gears here. It's such a beautiful movie. There's all this incredible uh, light. And we've talked a little bit about sort of the lighting effects and things that go through it. But when we're talking about the ideation, sort of like the, the, the early steps of how you visualize, you know, the, the words on the page, which sounds like there weren't even that many words on the page. When you're talking about turning the non-script into images, how did this happen? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, the, the thing that I kept trying to not forget was that we were, even though there was all these technical things to consider, that there's all the same things you go into any movie with as a cinematographer. You know, it's like how... How are the lenses going to tell the story? How's the lighting going to tell the story? How's camera movement going to tell the story? And so it's like I was trying to ignore a lot of that, you know, not to any detriment of the film, but I, ha I was surrounded by Eric and Z and, and Kirsten, like, and they were, they took care of so much of that, that I could 
focus on the film as any a cinematographer would for any kind of narrative film where it's like, okay, does this, you know, what kind of lighting arc do we want? Do you know, does, how does the film change as we go along? Different scenes are going to show up differently, you know, depending on the mood of the characters and where, what kind of journey we want to take people on. So, I mean, we were trying to not let all of that interfere and just try to tell, tell the story with, you know, it's like, well, we ended up with a lot of kind of wider lenses, not super wide, but, you know, in the 20s range, kind of 35 or 50 was like really long for us. We didn't want just a mushy background. It was the story's very much about how he is part of his environment and how does he react to his environment. So we really wanted to play that lens wise and camera. We really wanted it to feel spontaneous constantly. Like Dean and I talked a bit about just throwing it away a little bit where it's like not getting too precious with anything. It was like we would set things up and we'd think about it and light it and it would probably be a little too precious. And then we're like, okay, how do we throw this away a little? Like, how do we, you know, maybe the camera is not perfectly stable. Maybe, you know, maybe the lens, the, we need a little more flare, a little less, or, you know, a little more, you know, the lighting needs to be a little more haphazard just so that it didn't feel too contrived. So it's like constant, that constant balance of like, okay, what could realistically happen here without a movie crew? And, you know, wh which scenes do we, we play those with so that the audience feels it a lot? Yeah, trying to make it a really beautiful documentary. You know, like, well, what if Chivo were making a documentary, but still feel super grounded and a little bit sloppy? Um, by the time the lights come up, by the time the movie is over, and I'm looking around the theater, uh, there's not a dry eye. There's so many tears of happiness, I would say, when, when I went to go see this in the theater, that you guys have completely uh, accomplished what you set out to. Because if the audience isn't connecting and isn't identifying with the characters, that doesn't happen at the end. And you guys have created something that is beautiful and absolutely uh, humanizing in this sort of magical realism. Like, you know, it's the real world, except, you know, there just happens to be living shells that wear sneakers that, you know, are moving around and have eyes and, you know, are sort of, uh, you know, existing alongside people. It, it's a real accomplishment. And congratulations. Congratulations on this project. It's not like anything I think most people have ever seen before. And I think it's really going to stand the, the test of time. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's just very humbling and just glad to help share it. Just that you made something that really stirred an emotion is quite pleasing. To It's one of the reasons why I got into it. <laughs> Bianca Klein, Eric Atkins, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you very much. All right, so that was Bianca Klein and Eric Adkins. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to uh, have you guys back on in the future. I can't wait to see the movie. Oh, my God. So, so Ben, you know what time it is? What time would that be? It's Bill Pang time. We got to thank our Ooh. friends over at Aerie, you know, makers of all kinds of fantastic products that uh, the mm -hmm. industry utilizes extensively to make yes. uh, all ends of cinema. You know, there's a camera that is an amazing camera that I'm afraid might get a little overlooked now with the uh, just starting to ship this week, uh, Alexa 35. It's their previous flagship camera, the Alexa Mini LF. 
an incredible camera. And uh, LF stands for Larry Fong. By that's the way. right, Larry Fong. Larry Fong, a uh, fantastic cinematographer, friend of the show. It stands for Larry Fong. It also might stand for large format, but uh, the Harry Alexa Mini LF. Maybe it, Larry Fong stands for large format. It, it could, you know. Yeah, it, it very well could. Anyway, the LF camera is now more available, which is kind of wonderful. And a lot of people had to wait around a long time for that camera because the Alexa 35 has just come out. But the Alexa Mini LF is an incredibly capable camera, and uh, it's now going to be somewhat more available. I think actually Hot Rod Cameras has one in stock right now for the first time in I can't even tell you how long. And for people out there who want that large format look, uh, you can't necessarily get that from the latest technology. Large format, which is a larger sensor, and it's a different sort of style. There, there's different a lot of optical properties. The lens hits it differently. It's not just a matter of uh, that it's a bigger format with more resolution. It's that everything is different about it. Well, it, it is, is somewhat debatable. There is a lot of similarities between all the different formats, but there are people out there who will argue that you cannot get the large format look at least easily in any other format. And I think I'm one of those people who will argue that. Yeah. And you know, actually I want to slide right into my short end this week. And now short ends because my short end is a movie that you can watch right now. If you have Netflix called Er. well, it's not actually called Er. it's, it looks like Er cause it's R R R, which was also happened to be shot on the Alexa mini LF. And it's an incredible look. The movie is mind blowing. It's an it's an Indian film, and it I, I'm is, just going to say it is rip shit bonkers. <laughs> yes, it is rip shit bonkers. But you know, I got to say that you know, of course, it's a musical. It's got three very. It's an Indian movie, so all in uh, most Bollywood films are musical at some point. Uh, true, they don't exactly call this one Bali. They call this one Tali, uh, the Tollywood, which is actually because it's in the Telugu uh, language. But it's also one of the most expensive movies ever made in India. It was a $74 million budget, and it is currently the 10th highest grossing movie in the world. Wor- it is worth like, every penny, by the way. That budget is all on the screen. It is on the screen, and it's, I'll put it in exactly the same sort of mindset as like, you know, friend of the show and film critic Alonzo Duraldi of uh, the Linoleum Knife podcast has said, you go into it, you turn your brain off, you just let it wash over you. And it's very much like that. It, it's like a Marvel film. It, like, you know, it's a Marvel movie. You go in there, you, you turn your brain off, you let your, it wash over. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It's very much knows exactly what it's trying to do. And I actually think the best Marvel films do that too. I think like the latest Thor, Love and Thunder doesn't take itself too seriously. And Taika Waititi knows exactly what that pitch is. And I think that RRR has that too. And you should not go in there going, ugh. This guy's picking up a motorcycle and beating this other man with it. You know, that's not realistic. And this guy's picking up this thing and throwing it halfway across the world. This is uh, absolute lunacy, bonker, fun. And you just have to take it for what it is and say, hey, you know what? This movie is, is all about spectacle and it delivers on it. And it's nearly three hours long. I watched it last night and uh, I, I may watch it again. So, I mean, it's on Netflix, so you don't have to watch all three hours at once if you don't want to. That's true. I, Although I, I would did. like to say I'd like to say something about it, though, in that it actually is a very political film in, in a way. It's politics that don't necessarily uh, touch a nerve as much in America. 
but it's very anti-colonialist. It like the British colonialists are just monsters. They're like Nazis. In an American movie, they would just be straight up Nazis. But you know what? We, we have our own history with the British. So it's not like, you know, this is actually something that the U.S. and India have in common. And I, I got to say that there is some wonderful twirling of mustaches of just how incredibly oh. evil the Brits are portrayed in this film. So Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like the most gleeful bad people ever, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. And I got to uh, say that the actors who are playing some of those those Brits really look like they're having fun, too. So it's <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it is colorful. It's like a comic book. Yeah. I feel bandwagony about it, but it's, uh, it's really something special. And I've been a big fan of Indian movies from a million zillion years ago when I was a projectionist, this Indian company used to rent out our theater and bring in actual Bollywood films that I'd never seen before. And they weren't subtitled or anything because they would bring in an all Indian audience. And they were like, this is directed by the Steven Spielberg of India. And I would sit up in the projection booth and I would watch these movies with my jaw on the floor because, you know, Indian movies use some of the same visual language as the movies I was used to seeing. But really, we, you know, outside of Satyajit Ray, we didn't really get a lot of Indian movies in America back then. And this is like, like you say, it's like such an entertainment. It's hard to not be captivated by the by just the ingenuity and the beauty and the outrageous visual effects and just, you know, the crazy banana pants stuff that they're trying that they're doing in this movie. Yeah, it, it's quite a ride. And uh, if you like the sort of nonsensical, grand spectacle of movies that uh, are not taking themselves too seriously, then then this might be the movie for you. And I would say a masterclass in sequence design too. watch it to see how to put together a sequence, how to build a sequence. So well done. So, Ben, what is your short end this week? Uh, my short end is probably more brief and less uh, exuberant, but it's a news item that I stumbled across today, and that's that Vimeo just did a huge layoff. They laid off 6% of their workforce. Whoa. And their workforce was like under 2,000 people. And it's something where I'm, I kind of just want to put a marker here and say, like, let's watch this space and see if more befalls Vimeo. I'm a big fan of Vimeo. I ha Vimeo is where I have like all of my work is up on Vimeo. I've had a Vimeo account for over 10 years. I use it constantly. I used it today. I use Vimeo for client review. And uh, there was a quote from the CEO. Basically, he kind of talks elliptically about market conditions and uncertainty ahead. Like, I don't know exactly what that means. I wonder to a degree if Adobe acquiring Frame.io might be pulling some steam out of the locomotive of Vimeo because people use Frame.io in the same way that we use Vimeo. Uh, it's really hard to say. And, you know, Vimeo is sort of, in a way, the main competitor to YouTube and the anti-YouTube. I find YouTube's interface to be a cluttered sack of shit. And Vimeo is is something that's like clean. And in, instead of YouTube, which is free and monetizing on your back, Vimeo is charging you and allowing you to control the user experience a little bit more. And, you know, I have always found it far preferable to put my stuff up there for that very reason. Like if I post a reel and I send it to someone to watch. I don't want them to like have to sit through a fucking Budweiser ad before they watch my reel or have a video suggested to them after my reel. That's like, you know, Hey, here's the amazing Jonathan pulling a, you know, a, a magic trick or something. It's, it's super weird. Anyway, I'm a little bummed out about it, but I, I'm bucking for you. Vimeo. You're my favorite. I really appreciate Vimeo's advertising 
And by that, I mean like lack of advertising. It's not the same sort of spectacle that you get when you go to YouTube and many other of these services, which is all about trying to put ads in front of your face. Now, some people might argue, oh, well, that's why Vimeo is having trouble. And I say, absolutely not. Vimeo should not go down into the gutter, so to speak, of just like loading up as many ads, mid-roll ads, pre-roll ads, post-roll ads. It's terrible. I I don't think that Vimeo should be playing in that space. They're they're just a, a completely different service and they shouldn't try to do that. But, you know, timing right now, I kind of get it. You know, Microsoft, Twitter, Netflix, Tesla, Coinbase, Robinhood, there's a bunch of layoffs. There's a, all have been reducing their, their workforce in the last few months. Um, and other companies like Apple, Google, and Facebook, they've all said they're going to stop hiring. So it's like, it's a it's an interesting time right now. I think that some companies are just sort of getting ready for, I think, maybe what they consider a downturn. And maybe they want to mm-hmm. be prepared. I'm not really sure. But Vimeo's uh, stock price has also fallen dramatically this year they're down about 64 percent. so that that might have something to do with it too buy vimeo that's all i took away from that buy vimeo i'm gonna buy a bunch of vimeo stock now well it's, it's a lot cheaper now so <laughs> totally good all right so ben i think that just about does it for another episode where can people find you it never gets old go to benrock.com you can go to benrock.com you can find all my social media links uh, friend me on linkedin follow me on twitter uh, friend me on facebook a- any of those things let me know that you listen to the show uh, Ilya, where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, or any of the socials like uh, LinkedIn. For some reason, uh, people seem to be doing a lot of LinkedIn these days and hitting me up there and asking about building studios and that sort of thing. And Hot Rod Cameras does all that. So we, we just uh, put in a grid at another uh, studio and we can uh, do all that sort of stuff for you if you are trying to figure out where you want to shoot things and, and whatnot and need some people to help you. Uh, hit us up at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. All right. So Ilya, uh, let's thank some people. First off, who should we thank? Let's thank Ben Katz because we did not make his job easy today. Uh, Not the least. We had had some technical issues, mostly on my side. So uh, thank you, Ben. And sorry, Ben. Uh, let's thank Alana Cody, a producer of the show, showrunner. She makes sure that we uh, are getting all of our stuff done and making sure that uh, we have plenty of great episodes uh, coming up into the future. And uh, thank you, Alana, because I know you're going to be listening to this later. And uh, thanks. And uh, lastly, let's thank Kay's Alatrakshi. Go to musicbykays.com. Kay's created every scrap of music you heard on tonight's episode. Tonight's episode. On this episode. I don't know what time of day you're listening to it. You could be listening to it first thing in the morning while you're jogging. I don't know. That's right. Uh, anyway. Coffee uh, check and out Cinematography Podcast. It, of course. Yeah. Check out musicbykays.com and uh, hire Kay's to score your next movie. For God's sakes. He's amazing. Hey, and don't forget to go to camnoir.com to check out all the show notes from this episode. And every episode, you'll also find uh, war stories and all kinds of other uh, great episodes there. So uh, check out our website. And oh man, do we have some good ones coming up. Stay tuned. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.